Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. 1995. Chapter 19. Fake it when you can't. Dimitri remained as strange as ever, but there was little time to wonder about him. As far as Hermione was concerned, he was harmless to both her person and her grace, as well as to Fleur's. But the same could not be said of other matters at the school. Professor Tracar taught a form of history, but most of Tracar's classes forced Hermione to choose between ignoring the lesson or struggling not to speak out of turn. Once or twice she failed at both, and found herself dismissed from history of magic for the day an embarrassing smirch on her record. Her other classes were pleasant, but the sheer number of them still imposed a burden, and it was becoming increasingly difficult to balance them all. The only thing which kept her going was that she would have the summer to get her breath back, and that the course loan at Beaubaton would feel light in comparison, not to mention Hermione would definitely get that eleventh course approved after showing all that she was capable of. Until then, however, there were formulae to repair— Texts to translate from or into ancient or aqueous languages, charms to practice, and a triwizard tournament task to prepare for. Hermione took one of her books down with her to Hogsmeade for lunch, but she scarcely got any studying done. No sooner had Hermione looked down than someone approached her table to interrupt her. "'Oh, yes, send me the bill, thank you,' Hermione heard. And she looked up from Mermish by the natural method, just as a bespectacled woman with a snakeskin handbag shifted a chair over the table and sat down in front of her. "'Is that all you're going to have, dear? Really, now, live a little. You won't need to pay for it anyway,' the woman said. Her outfit, mostly garish shades of red and green, made her look something like a Christmas decoration. "'Pointy foot, if you'd be so kind as to get some smoked salmon, the girl is going to starve herself.' "'No, nothing for myself, if that's all right.' "'I'm sorry, you are Rita Skeeter,' said Rita Skeeter. "'I'm a reporter for the Daily Prophet, and I was hoping I could ask you a few questions.' As she spoke, Skeeter removed a roll of parchment and a bright scarlet quill from her handbag. "'Britain is just on the edge of its seat to get to know its champion.' Hermione paused for a moment, uncertain, then smiled and nodded. The photograph from the book hadn't really captured the intensity of Skeeter's gaze when one was its subject. Skeeter was taller than Hermione had thought, too. Hagrid must be enormous if Skeeter was, well, normal-sized. "'I see you've spoken with Mr. Riddle,' Skeeter said. "'I hope you didn't say too much about me.' "'Very little. He called you his good friend, though,' Hermione said. Skeeter's mouth twitched. "'How very kind of him.' She dipped her quill in a well of ink, black and silver swirled. "'Testing, this is Rita Skeeter, reporter, etc.,' she said. And the quill began to move of its own accord, dancing across the parchment that Skeeter had flattened on the table. "'This is your faithful daily prophet reporter, Rita Skeeter,' it wrote, "'whose kind and clever quill, sagacious and—' "'I don't pile it on so thick,' Skeeter said. And the quill scratched out some of the last line before it resumed, writing— "'whose kind and clever quill has served her well?' "'Better,' Skeeter said. And she returned her attention to Hermione. "'I see that you've noticed my quill,' she said, as though the quill hadn't just become the focal point of the table. "'It's very interesting,' Hermione agreed. And the quill continued to write. 
Miss Granger is impressed by what she has seen in Britain. When you were correcting the quill, it was almost as if... as if it had some kind of personal initiative. This was obviously some sort of dictation quill, which could be engineered to hold a bit of personality, but this quill was in a league of its own compared to the other dictation quills which Hermione had encountered in her life. I'm lucky enough to have an artificer among my readers. They sent Quillant to me several years ago as a gift. You named it? asked Hermione as her meal was delivered. A Quillard named himself, I believe. Skeeter tilted her head at the quill, smiling. Or perhaps my artificing fan did that. Your quill is remarkable, Hermione said. She's an early model, sort of a prototype, but I imagine that quills like her will probably be on the shelves in a few months now that the flaws have been worked out. Now about that little business of being Britain's champion, how goes it? That was the second time that Skeeter had put it like that, Britain's champion. There wasn't any other way she'd put it, actually, which was just a tiny bit concerning. I'm not really certain. I'm a Hogwarts champion, I suppose, Hermione said. Technically speaking, but that isn't really the same thing as being Britain's champion, is it? I thought that the Triwizard Tournament had more to do with the schools than the countries. Bobaton has a traditional catchment area that extends from Hispanopoulia to Sicily. Skeeter waved her hand dismissively. Certainly, certainly, and Hogwarts is the pride of Britain. Still, I see how this might be a touchy subject for you. Why don't we talk about something else? You! Instantly, the quill began to take notes on Hermione. The first thing that strikes one about Hermione Granger is a vitality. Indeed, the young witch practically glows from within as she speaks of being Hogwarts' champion. Hermione raised an eyebrow. Don't you think that glowing is a little too much? Pay no attention to Quillard, dear. Now, in your own words, how do you think the first task went? It was a little horrifying, different from what I had expected, Hermione said. I don't think I've ever had to improvise like that before. Certainly not with potions. It was a real test of our abilities. As witty as she is bright, the quill wrote, Granger praises the high standards to which Hogwarts students are held. Here the charming brunette feels that she can finally live up to her potential. Bobaton has a perfectly good curriculum, Hermione said, almost snapping. Did you know that we began alchemy two years before Hogwarts? I'm sure that their curriculum is perfectly serviceable. Every school has its speciality, Skeeter said amiably. And how do you feel about the upcoming second task? Nervous? Excited? Well, it's uh, definitely a lot, Hermione said. And she ate a bite of salmon as she wondered how one was supposed to say, I got spiders in my blood for the first task, and I'm a little nervous to see how the judges are going to top that. I'm really just trying to focus on being adequately prepared. A strong performance in the tribes of tournament is a top priority for Miss Granger, who impressed on your correspondent how important the competition is to her. Despite her youth, this teenage spitfire is determined to give the foreign champions a run for their galleons. Speaking of Berberton, it is no secret that you spent a few years abroad. What about Britain made you desire to return here? Hermione frowned. Miss Skeeter, I really don't think your quill is... Quill hard, dear. Skeeter corrected in a friendly tone. She has a name. I don't think that Quillard is taking this down in the right way. I'm just trying to do a good job. And the same is true for Fleur and Victor as well. I don't care how many points I've gotten or how many points anyone else has gotten, so long as I've done the best that I could, and all of us make it out the other end all right. Miss Granger has a bone-deep sense of fair play, 
and wants to do what's best for her and her classmate. Pretend like Quillard isn't even there, dearie. What's your favourite part about Hogwarts? That seemed like a safe enough topic, and something which the Quill wouldn't feel the need to embellish. I'm glad that Hogwarts is open to so many people. One of my instructors, Professor Lupin, was only able to get an education at Hogwarts by hiding the fact that he had been bitten, and I hope that, whatever else anyone may take away from Britain, other governments see that it's perfectly reasonable to let werewolves attend. I've never once felt that I'm in danger from any one of them, Hermione said. As one might expect, Miss Granger praised the rational, progressive, and enlightened stance that Britain has taken toward magical non-humans, and shuddered in disgust as she recalled the dark times that our fellow magical citizens had to live through a scant generation ago, and which others yet endure elsewhere in the world. That one actually wasn't too bad, Hermione decided. I heard that you caused a little stir at the Yule Ball, Skeeter said, smirking. Are you really dating both of your rival champions? Dating? Well, not exactly, Hermione said. She supposed she was dating Victor, after all, or had gone on one date, anyway, with an option to renew, but, well... "'We weren't together as champions, if you have to know. It was about solidarity and friendship,' she said, hoping that her tone sounded more confident to Skeeter's ears than to her own. "'Of course. You knew Fleur Delica before you came to Britain, didn't you? Could you tell me more about that?' "'Fleur was my mentor at Burbaton. She's looked out for me from the beginning.' "'And I'm grateful for the opportunity to look out for her a little now,' Hermione answered. She glanced down while gathering her thoughts, not even really intending to check on the quill, but on the same, she saw what the quill was writing. "'The closest of her rivals in the Triwizard Tournament is Miss Delacour, a French trumpet—' "'Quillard!' Skeeter snapped. And at the same moment, Hermione rose just as sharply from her seat, no matter that she had hardly touched her food. "'I think that I'm done with this interview,' Hermione said." Behind her, she could hear Skeeter reprimand the quill. Delacour's part vila, Quillard. You can't just be writing things like that in this kind of— And then Hermione was outside, and the door was firmly shut behind her. For the next couple of days, Hermione didn't feel like walking down to Hogsmeade. She returned briefly, a few hours after her interview with Skeeter, to buy a few small loaves of bread. Nothing like what they had at Bobaton, obviously, but it would do. And some sandwich spreads, then retreated to the school grounds— where Skeeter still seemed reluctant to go. If she wasn't heading to Hogsmeade, though, then there seemed to be little reason for Hermione to trudge through the snow in the middle of the day, so she took her lunches in the castle, sitting at a commandeered desk in a forgotten classroom, looking out a window at the Black Lake, which is how Hermione came to, quite literally, bump into Dimitri, as well as stumble and fall. In her defense, while Hermione had been reading a book, her peripheral awareness had developed far beyond what it had been in her car-colliding days, and she definitely, probably, maybe would have been able to avoid him had he not been wearing a bloody invisibility cloak. But he was, so all the definitelys and maybes in the world didn't matter in the face of a smashed sandwich, a sore bum, and, worst of all, bent pages in her copy of Seven Approaches to Wizarding French Law. "'What are you doing in an invisibility cloak?' she hissed. While Dimitri worriedly stuffed it into an inner pocket of his robes, eyes darting from side to side. But Dimitri stammered. I I I mean I mean he smiled dumbly, then from another pocket pulled from his bag the top half of a bottle of fire whiskey. Victor does not want to know. Hermione was focused on smoothing out her book, but she had enough attention left to look at Dimitri out of the corner of her eye. Aren't you always drinking? 
Ah, but not this, Dimitri said. This is different. Like, uh, what was it? Nettle wine, remember? She frowned. What's the occasion? Occasion is being I have acquired aquarium, acquisited fire whiskey, Dimitri said cheerfully. And what are you doing away from Hogsmeade at the lunch hour? I decided not to go, Hermione said, having no desire to get into a discussion about Rita Skeeter at this moment. But you're not done at the Great Hall for lunch either. I don't go there either, Hermione said, but Dimitri offered no response save for a quizzical look. It's the house elves I don't feel comfortable with. But there are no elves in the Great Hall. That isn't the point. I don't feel comfortable with what happens to them. I'm glad that the elves who wanted to be free are free, but not all of them wanted that, and some of them were killed. Hermione sighed. Must think I'm crazy. Fleur understands, but she still thinks that I'm overreacting. What's done is done. I cannot say. I know there have been, how do you say, terrible things before, but what I have learned at Hogwarts about elves is half of what I have learned about elves. We do not have such at Durmstrang. The cleaning, the cooking, these are things that we do ourselves, or that are done by the ones that live in the village. Is that because Durmstrang feels that it's wrong? Dimitri shook his head. Not at all, or at least... It is not so in the way that you think. The rectors prefer that we do these things ourselves, so we prepare our meals, clean our rooms, and... Dimitri paused, visibly searching for the right word. And additively, yes, additively, we do so for the teachers. So you have no house elves at all? There were only a few elves at Bobaton, working alongside various other staff, but Hermione had never known that Durmstrang had none. None, which is not to say that there are not elves in the north. Dimitri added. There are a few families that are only elves, but mostly they live with the goblins, who they, they call them forge elves. Dimitri paused. Come, let us somewhere else so we can sit on chairs, he said. And Hermione led him to the recently inaugurated lunchroom. I never heard of goblins having elves, Hermione said, while setting out her book and sandwich. Elves, goblins, they are not so different from each other. Dimitri said, while pouring out fire whiskey into a pair of little conjured glasses. Yosolvar and Dokolvar is what we call them in Norga, Denmark. Dimitri handed one cup to Hermione, who eyed it suspiciously. She'd had alcohol before, even prior to the impromptu Christmas Eve party, but never whiskey. It was curiously warm through the glass, and reached out with a small tendril of smoke, which curled into itself and out of sight a few inches above the surface. The goblins say they tamed the elves gave some to us long ago, and now they are, how you say, domesticated, Dimitri said, and he snapped his fingers. Hermione snorted. Domesticated, I hate that word. It shouldn't be possible to domesticate another being. It shouldn't be permitted. She sighed and sipped from her glass. It burned, and Hermione gasped in surprise, but the pain wasn't entirely unpleasant. Brittle talked about it, though. What did we do to them? How could we do it to them? Dimitri shrugged and poured himself another glass, then refilled Hermione's. We have at Durmstrang what we call the Volchanovasunda, as you might say, Volchanova's dogs. They are a crop Samoyed mix and very clever. You give them packages, you tell them where or who to bring them to, and the dogs, they do it. Now, does that make you think of anything? Hermione didn't need to think particularly long on that one. Owls. Yes, but there is more. Dimitri said. When I first heard about these dogs, I said, Sir, who do I talk to to get the service of them? Who is the owner of these dogs? And do you know what he said to me? What did he say? 
they own themselves. And he looked at me as if I were brain loose, as if it were basic fact, or he had asked, sir, does the sun shine in the sky, or is it a very large, how do you call, firefly? This thing, he does not question it, but you surely know, without my saying it, that he thinks a house elf cannot own itself. So a dog can own itself, but not an elf. That is what they would be saying at Durmstrang, Dimitri agreed. That's fucked. Hermione leaned back and sipped at a second glass of fire whiskey. Whole thing's fucked, she said again. So dogs and owls are people. That's what you're saying. Dimitri shrugged, then rolled his eyes. What is people, yes? But the world is full of so many clever beings, and I wonder if we see it all. But I don't know anything, really. We made them. Goblins made them. You don't know that for sure. There are several plausible theories of... What am I doing? What are we doing? I'm talking like a textbook. Victor likes that. Victor what? Dimitri looked at her curiously. Usually alcohol does not be making people more self-conscious, he smiled. Well, I... uh, Hermione looked away, face flushing. That isn't even the point. What does it matter where elves came from? Whoever made them, however they were made, you and I weren't responsible for that. And the house elves who work here weren't the elves that were made. We've all just found ourselves in this situation. Trapped, she almost added. Then we have no responsibility. No, that isn't it at all. I don't know all that much about dogs, Hermione said. I never owned one. My parents didn't like animals. They said it was enough that they had two children. But dogs really like humans, don't they? That's what Riddle said anyway, and a fair amount of stories agreed. This is true, mostly, yes, Dimitri agreed. Crops are hating muggles, of course, but... He shrugged. Little detail, not important. There wasn't really a choice there. They have to like us. It's in their bones, but... She shook her head. I don't want to compare elves to dogs. Elves are rational beings. As rational as people, yes, I think, but maybe that is not saying so much. Hermione frowned. What do you mean? Dimitri chuckled. People are sometimes not so rational, as you say. And the look on Hermione's face continued. There is man I know, wizard, for whom fear is controlling everything. He's miserable. And there is man I know also for who only leisure controls. He's fool. Neither of these men are acting rational, and both are people, yes? Humans can be bad, too, Hermione murmured, thinking. They can have all kinds of desires. People can be, I don't know, brainwashed or hurt in ways that change how they think. They can be less reasonable than even dogs, I suppose. Being human just means that that it's easier for them to explain how they feel, and sometimes that makes it easier for them to be understood by others. Then they can compromise. Elves can talk? supplied Dimitri, apparently trying to be helpful. So how will you compromise? I don't know, she said. But she quickly realized that was a lie. There was something she could do, Hermione realized, and she considered the glass in her hands, looking at it for a long time. Finally, almost disinterestedly, she tipped it sideways and watched as the rest of the fire whiskey poured out, like a little scarlet waterfall, and spread beneath her feet. "'What are you doing?' Dimitri asked. "'Apologizing,' Hermione said. "'She could talk later.' 
She could get explanations later, debate later, but first she had to show that she had listened to what the elves had already said. Apologizing? What do you mean? Mother Dimitri stopped because he gave up or because he got it. Hermione couldn't tell and didn't really care. She was busy thinking about her laundry. Wizarding clothing didn't need to be laundered very often, not if it had been enchanted properly, but it could still be dirtied by potion stains and other magical residue. Proper wizarding ink was supposed to be truly indelible, so that a page might remain perfectly legible for as long as the paper or vellum lasted, which, thanks to other enchantments, was supposed to be a very long time. There were attempts to prevent this from being a nuisance, but the fact of the matter was that, sans further charm work, the ink would do a better job of staining her robes than her robes would at resisting that stain. It helped that Hermione always got the good ink. So, quite logically, Hermione set out her inkwell and dipped the hem of her sleeve in it. She observed until the ink was dry, then rolled her sleeve back a little to cover it, and after a few more pleasantries with Dimitri, she headed to class. No one commented on the rolled-up sleeve. When it was time for dinner, Hermione returned to the carriage, had a final sandwich, and neatly folded her robes and placed them on the floor beneath her bed. Then, thinking better of it, she shook out her robes, dropped them back on the floor, and kicked them unceremoniously beneath her bed again. The next morning her robes were still there, but folded even more neatly than before, smelling of citrus and absent any stain. "'Thank you,' Hermione said, and she put a glass of milk and a biscuit where the stain had been. That wasn't clothes. Not that the elves needed clothes, most of them being free already, so hopefully there shouldn't be any offense taken. But she paused and thought about it for another minute— and wrote an explanatory note in the neatest handwriting she could muster, just as if it were an essay. Hermione left the milk and biscuit out when she left for breakfast, with the letter nicely folded and tucked half beneath the plate, and when she returned at the end of the day, the dishes were empty and clean, and the letter was sitting on the plate, folded into an origami dog. There was probably some sort of elfin etiquette which frowned on sending correspondence back, or maybe they were just shy— but Hermione was reasonably sure that nobody made artful paper dogs for people who had just been terribly offensive. The next day, for the first time in many weeks, Hermione walked to the great hall for breakfast. There were a few surprised glances, a few glares from Haywood and her friends, but Hermione didn't have any problems with the food, either because her problems with cursed cuisine were over, some people had treated her a little more kindly after her performance in the first task, if that wasn't all in her head, or because she had caught them off guard and they didn't have an opportunity to do anything. "'Have you run out of money?' Fleur said. "'I could always loan you something,' she said. Hermione shook her head. "'I realized that this house-elf thing is too big to grasp right away. It isn't something that I can figure out on my own, or even with another witch or wizard's help. I need the elves to help me, and for that I need to meet them halfway.' She reached out for a couple of oatmeal pancakes and an orange. I can't expect them to understand me if I don't respect what they are right now. Otherwise, I'm really just the same as Riddle, only from a different direction. Hermione wanted to make something that would work for them, but that couldn't be done without their input, could it? If Hermione needed a solution which she could live with, well, she needed a solution that they could live with, too. Riddle had already demonstrated how to make a solution with which they quite literally couldn't. So they're talking with you again? No, not yet and she didn't really know what they'd talk about when the time came. "'But I'll be ready when they are,' Hermione said. She pulled out her orb. "'Victor hasn't figured out anything new yet, has he?' The three champions had made little progress on discovering the rebus, 
the key to solving whatever problem their vomited orbs were supposed to present. Victor's examination of the Sword of Gryffindor had confirmed that the orbs had been enchanted by a goblin in some manner, but goblin magic was, if anything, more difficult to learn about now that trading in that knowledge was often a crime in the eyes of the Ministry as well as the goblins. It was possible that the secret could be found in some book written abroad, where stealing goblin lore was praised, not prosecuted, but with the present political situation it was difficult enough to import innocuous literature. Actual contraband was right out. The only thing left to them was trial and error. Not that I'm aware of, Fleur said. I think we're going about this completely the wrong way, Hermione mused. This has been enchanted by golden magic, hasn't it? It does, Fleur agreed. Hermione looked at her orb, rolling it between her fingers. Then why are we sitting around trying to figure out how to work with a form of magic that none of us has any experience with when we have experts on hand, she said. And she rose from her seat and walked around to where the Ravenclaws, particularly the Ravenclaw goblins, were eating. Pardon me, Hermione said. I was wondering if you could help us with something. She held out her orb. This is a puzzle of some kind, and I'm afraid that I haven't been able to get past the first step. All we know, really, is that it was enchanted by goblins. The smaller two of them, though they were all rather small, looked to their right, and a goblin with a blue eagle pin on his collar and a length of bronze ribbon in his hair. And you expect us to uncover its secrets for you? he asked eyebrows raised to the rooftops. Not exactly, just you probably know more than I do. Could she have figured out a better way to broach the subject? Probably. I hardly know anything about goblin magic, so even some pointers would be great, and I can figure out some way to compensate you, of course. His eyes narrowed. Show the glittering secrets of my people, the goblin said. No, not like she began but the goblin began to make a deep hiccuping sound, which, as his face adopted a wide, closed-mouthed grin, Hermione realized was laughter, or something like it. The goblin sitting directly to his left looked sharply at him for just a moment, so quickly and fleetingly that Hermione almost thought she'd imagined it. "'You just want me to figure out how to unlock it?' the goblin asked, and Hermione nodded. He looked at her for a moment, evidently thinking, then said, "'You still have that glass beetle?' I yes? Hermione almost asked the goblin how he knew about that, but she hadn't exactly kept it a secret besides putting it on the underside of her collar. If she'd ever adjusted her collar in the open, she surely had at some point, and easily could have been seen. You have a very good memory. The craftsmanship is very fine, he said, smiling. Could she give it up, should she? The answer to the latter was probably not, or at least that was what Madame Maxime would say and Fleur, and it was what any sensible person would say. Perhaps she could offer to hand it over later, just before she returns to France, but that seemed like a rather unwise thing to say in light of the history of goblin-wizarding relations. Before Hermione could consider it any further, her thoughts were interrupted by the goblin to the left of the one who requested her enchanted beetle-pin. "'What about notes?' he said. "'Notes? Every time I see you sitting down somewhere, you have a book. Even when you're eating, you're reading.' "'I'm sure that you take many notes as well,' he said, fingers interlacing tightly. "'I don't know about many. I take an appropriate amount of notes, if that's what you mean. "'I was impressed by your performance at the first task, and I have an interest in potions. "'If you and the other champions, Delacour and Crumb, recall what you were thinking, "'and why you made the approaches that you did during the first task, 
then I will tell you about your puzzle's first step, as you put it. That seemed fair, Hermione thought, and she said as much. The goblin, whose name was Banret, told her to work on those notes, and that he'd let her know when he had figured anything out. They spoke again almost a week later, and after Hermione handed over the notes she'd written and what she had collected from Fleur and Victor, Banret revealed what he had discovered. "'It is intended to react with a potion,' Banret said. "'I don't know which potion exactly, but I have some ideas.' There were some obvious candidates, yes, and when Hermione returned and reported to Fleur and Victor, they agreed. There were two potions brewed per champion for the first task, one for them and one by them. The latter potion had, in every case, been improvised, sometimes to a great degree, so it would take some work to reinvent the complete recipe of, if indeed the exact counterbrew was the necessary rebus, and they decided to first brew Arachne's Folly. Professor Malfoy required that the experiment be done under his supervision, since the potion was complicated and since he had permitted them to take a few ingredients from the storeroom, again under supervision, that seemed like a reasonable condition. Whatever expectations of disaster Malfoy had in mind went unfulfilled, however. It was tricky work, even with Fleur and Victor there to assist, but that was all. The orb went in, the vial of Arachne's folly burbled, almost belching, and then after a few seconds the color changed from dark green to speckled blue. After nothing else happened for a few minutes, Hermione slowly drained the potion through a sheet of sea silk, and all that was left in the vial afterward was a very tiny bell, no bigger than one of her fingernails. What the hell is this? Hermione shook it, very gently, but the bell made no noise that she could hear. Neither Fleur nor Victor had any ideas. If it was symbolic, then nobody knew what it symbolized. There was an enchantment, but the nature of that enchantment was difficult to discern, at least without potentially damaging the bell. At least the enchantment didn't seem to be of goblin origin. The same operation worked for Fleur and Victor's orbs, with the respective potions, and produced equally tiny objects, a telescoping ladder about eleven inches at its greatest extent, which did not fall down so long as the feet were in contact with the ground, and a handsaw, which was extraordinarily sharp, but not large enough to be useful for more than letter opening. Were they going to be made very small, then? It wasn't out of the question. Shrinking potions generally didn't make one quite so small, but there were more potent varieties, and the Triwizard Tournament wasn't funded by paupers. But it was equally possible that the size change was supposed to go the other way, and they were expected to enlarge their items before the second task. Rumors flew, as the date of the second task drew near, that someone had stolen the three Eyes of Providence which Vago had entrusted to the tournament officials— some said that she blamed Karkaroff for the thefts, others that only two eyes had been stolen, yet more that the eyes had only been irreparably bewitched, or damaged in some other fashion. It was said that the incident, whether theft or sabotage, had only been discovered as the final preparations were being made, but still soon enough for Mutvago to receive replacements or repair the damage. Whatever had actually happened, the second task came as quickly as anything else. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, 
as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.